Hello and welcome to another episode of the Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center Pain Management Podcast. My name is Brian Hovez. And my name is uh, Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. Uh, today we're going to be uh, discussing a condition uh, known as fibromyalgia or uh, central myofascial pain syndrome. Fibromyalgia? Isn't that that thing that, you know, back in the day people used to say it was just a, a basket phrase for kind of everybody who had this pain that people didn't really understand? I, you know, I know when I first started working, there was actually a couple of uh, orthopedic surgeons that used to say, oh, I think uh, fibromyalgia means the patient's crazy. Isn't that what you're talking about? Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, previously, fibromyalgia uh, was uh, considered a diagnosis that was given to individuals where ultimately a, a specific etiology of their chronic pain was not uh, able to be identified. And uh, uh, it was a diagnosis that was slapped onto people um, uh, when uh, diagnoses were not able to be determined. But unfortunately, uh, as a consequence, um, the, uh, the diagnosis then got a reputation um, of being a situation where people were over, uh, uh, over exaggerating their symptoms and there was a heavy um, uh, component of a psychiatric um, uh, condition, and maybe it was more pure, more of a pure psychiatric condition, which, um, as we'll discuss in detail today, is uh, absolutely not the case. Um, but there was definitely a strong stigma associated with the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, and it was fairly distressful to the patients who uh, were given that diagnosis at that time. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, it's. I think it's interesting from the perspective of you know, being in medicine and seeing this evolve over the past, you know, 15, 20 years and understanding what people thought of the word fibromyalgia, even just as recently as 2005. Uh, and obviously with the changing points that started with the American College of Rheumatology coming out and actually giving appropriate diagnostic criterion and saying, yes, this is a, a real disease um, and uh, therefore evolving it to what we actually know about the disease process uh, today. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, a great point uh, Dr. Hovez uh, brought up. And um, for patients that uh, we are concerned about the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, uh, keep in mind that there are updated diagnostic criteria uh, from the American College of Rheumatology that were released in 2010. Um, and you can uh, print out th that diagnostic criteria, criteria fairly easily uh, with a quick search, and then you can go over that uh, diagnostic criteria with your patients. Now, uh, keep in mind, like most diagnoses, you also want to be ruling out other uh, conditions um, that may present similarly, uh, making sure you're not missing other diagnoses. But if they fulfill that criteria and there's not another diagnosis that would better explain uh, their symptoms, then it's reasonable to use that as a working diagnosis. <clears throat> um, so at this point, I like to go into a little bit more uh, detail. Uh, about fibromyalgia, including uh, some of the classic clinical presentations, the epidemiology, the pathophysiology, and we'll finish up with uh, treatment options. So um, <clears throat> fibromyalgia, as we know, it's a chronic uh, pain condition characteri characterized by widespread pain uh, with common associated symptoms, including fatigue, sleep disturbances, cognitive dysfunction, uh, depressive episodes, and anxiety. In terms of the epidemiology, uh, fibromyalgia is estimated to affect 2 to 4% of the general uh, population. 
in regards to the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia, so one thing I let patients know uh, when either I give, I, uh, I determine that this is high on our differential diagnosis or if they come as a referral with the diagnosis of fibromyalgia from another provider, what I let them know is that at this point in time, we know there are objective anatomic physiologic changes uh, that we uh, can identify and uh, measure to some degree um, that occur in fibromyalgia. Um, so through that, not only are we starting to have ways to better diagnose uh, fibromyalgia, um, but we better understand the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia. So it's important to keep in mind that fibromyalgia is to a large degree a centralization of pain. Um, uh, and that central sens sensitization, centralization of pain is thought to play a significant role in the pathophysiology. Um, a lot of the uh, studies that have given us insight into the exact pathophysiology include functional MRI studies, which uh, demonstrate an increased activity and in pain processing regions in the central nervous system in patients with fibromyalgia compared to controls. In addition, uh, other uh, functional MRI studies have shown a decrease in the activation of pain inhibitory network. Um, and you can imagine the net effect of that. Also, interestingly enough, um, uh, even at rest, so resting functional MRI studies without nociceptive uh, stimuli demonstrate a hyperconnectivity uh, between areas of the brain, specifically the insular cortex, which, as we know, is one of the central hubs in the pain perception network. Um, uh, there's a, a hyperconnectivity of this insular cortex to other components of the pain processing network, as, other, as well as other networks in the brain uh, and in the central nervous system, including self-awareness and self-monitoring. So wait, I thought that the Lyrica commercials and uh, what you know, all these patients say is they're these hyperactive nerves. Uh, you're saying that there's a lot more of a central component to this? Yeah, not to say that there isn't uh, peripheral changes that occur in patients with fibromyalgia. We know that that probably uh, is the case too, um, but there is a large component of uh, uh, changes that occur in the central uh, nervous system, um, including, uh, as I mentioned, this hyperactivity of certain uh, pain processing areas of the brain, um, as well as changes in uh, certain neurotransmitters. So that leads me to one of the last things I wanted to talk about in terms of the pathophysiology is that through <coughs> studies ut utilizing proton magnetic resonance spectroscopy, what we've uh, found is that there's a mismatch of excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters in the central nervous system. Um, specifically with increased levels of the excitatory glutamate uh, as well as uh, uh, and or decreased levels of inhibitory GABA in the pain processing regions of patients with fibromyalgia compared to control. Um, so uh, as summary, uh, the pathophysiology is very complex. We're still, uh, still working to fully understand it, but we know that there is uh, changes in the uh, uh, um, physiology and the anatomy, uh, anatomic physiologic changes that occur, including upregulation of areas of the brain that um, uh, that uh, um, are involved in pain processing and pain memory, uh, as well as decreases in the areas of the brain that inhibit uh, pain and uh, downregulate pain, 
as well as this imbalance between uh, neurotransmitters, including uh, glutamate and GABA. Now, one thing you may be thinking, as I mentioned all these, and this is uh, a thought I often have as well, is, well, proton magnetic resonance spectroscopy and functional MRIs is great, but that's hard to order uh, when a patient comes into clinic. And so obviously we are still working on developing uh, objective measures uh, and tests that are gonna be more practical uh, for the uh, clinical setting. But the take home point being here that both uh, we as providers as well as we, we can communicate to our patients is that there are these objective changes that occur and uh, uh, that does help guide us in terms of treatment as we'll uh, discuss uh, in a moment. So when you're talking about all of these theoretical options um, and ways that we can kind of explain and justify it, is there any practical use for this or is this really just a, a way that we're able to kind of understand and relay uh, the, the idea of the uh, disease process to patients? So currently, uh, um, I would say the, some of the practical uses are knowing that these changes occur in fibromyalgia patients, it can guide some of our treatment. For example, knowing that there's a imbalance between glutamate and GABA, um, utilizing medications such as memantine or Namenda can be effective for patients with fibromyalgia and randomized controlled trials have shown that as uh, we'll discuss in a moment. Uh, but in terms of making the diagnosis, currently I would still recommend the American College of Rheumatology 2010 diagnostic criteria. Um, <clears throat> now going into the uh, treatment, we will talk about medications, but um, as we all know, and, uh, and I don't mean to be repetitive here, but we can't emphasize enough because the reason is that it's hard to uh, continue, um, consistently implement this in our practices due to lack of insurance coverage, lack of patient compliance. Uh, but it, you know, it is our duty to do our best uh, to make this happen um, in terms of not just focusing on medications and not having the patient just be a passive uh, player in receiving a medication to, to uh, treat this disease process. Um, that, that approach is likely to not succeed. Uh, and um, one thing I always emphasize to my patients is that even with use of the medications, this is not going to be an overnight or uh, a change within a week or even in a couple weeks. Um, typically, fibromyalgia is a process that has developed over an extensive period of time and has become very ingrained in our neurologic system. Um, and therefore, the treatment of it is going to take time as well. And I think making sure patients understand that is very uh, critical. Um, especially when they're coming in saying, oh, I failed this, I failed this, I haven't responded to this, or that medication you tried didn't work. Um, I know we hear this all the time in, in different talks, but uh, it, it is important to say, well, you know, how long did you take it for? How much of a chance did you give it? And then reemphasizing to them that, hey, this is going to take time um, because this is a process that has developed over time. So with, with that, you know, you're bringing up the point of the you know, process and not being able to kind of turn things around. Do you consider fibromyalgia a diagnosis like similar, like we would say, uh, a radiculopathy, where there is a, a a potential endpoint to the to the process, where it you know sometimes things do get better and the you know the the symptoms actually resolve. So in terms of complete resolution, um, 
I would say that from my review, my understanding of the literature, as well as my clinical experience, I have not seen that in terms of complete resolution. Uh, but it's definitely something that can be significantly improved uh, and made to be more of a minor uh, component of a person's life rather than a dominant feature of their day-to-day -day existence. So more of a kind of chronic ongoing maintenance type of thing is, is, is uh, you know, where, you know, you're think you're, you're addressing it, you're always trying to stay on top of it, but it's not necessarily something that's controlling and running your life. Is that what you're uh, yeah. saying? Yes, that, that would be my uh, approach to it clinically and understanding of it clinically. Thanks. Um, so in terms of the treatment, like I said, it's important that we don't just focus on medications. I think of kind of the three pillars of uh, treatment of fibromyalgia to be one of uh, an emphasis on gentle, low impact aerobic exercise. And you really want to start with that gentle, low impact, because if you throw someone into a uh, more aggressive uh, uh, physical therapy or exercise regimen, they're going to really struggle um, and they're going to not want to ever do it again. Uh, so warm water, pool therapy, I think is excellent if that is available. Um, uh, so that's really, really important. The gentle, low impact, consistent aerobic exercise. Starting very uh, gent gently doesn't have to be every day, um, but just the consistency is important. Making it part of the routine is important and then gradually working the way up. Cognitive behavioral therapy or other forms uh, such as um, ACT, uh, but bottom line is, like we talked about, there's, a, there's anatomic physiologic changes that occur in the central nervous system, and we know we can have a positive impact on those anatomic physiologic changes through uh, uh, different um, uh, behavioral therapy, including cognitive behavioral therapy. One of the th major things that cognitive behavioral therapy will do is it'll uh, um, teach to decrease uh, catastrophizing, uh, which is a large component of a lot of chronic pain conditions, include, including fibromyalgia. And it will also uh, have uh, positively modulate the brain's processing of pain. Um, I wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk about medication. So from a medication standpoint, as we all know, there's three FDA-approved medications for treatment of fibromyalgia, pregabalin, duloxetine, and uh, milnisoprine, uh, also known as Savella. Um, however, one of the most studied medications is probably amitriptyline, which has uh, demonstrated efficacy in multiple studies for fibromyalgia. As we know, amitriptyline as a tricyclic antidepressant does have a fair amount of side effects. Um, and so we have to be cautious with that as well, especially in our elderly uh, population. Um, if you look at the European League Against Rheuma uh, Rheumatism, they have uh, recommendations for treatment of fibromyalgia. The recommendations uh, grading are weak um, for uh, the medications that we mentioned, but the medications we mentioned and, and a few additional, so I'll go through those. Um, it includes amitriptyline, 10 to 50 milligrams a day, cyclobenzaprine 10 to 40 milligrams a day. As we know, cyclobenzaprine or flexoril is not the best uh, muscle relaxer. It actually functions more uh, as a pain and a sedative medication. It's very similar structurally to uh, tricyclic antidepressants and it has serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibition. One thing you'll see is a common factor here in terms of the medications that we mentioned. The majority of them have uh, increase in serotonin, norepinephrine 
uh, reuptake inhibition activity. So amitriptyline 10 to 50 milligrams a day, cyclobenzaprine 10 to 40 milligrams a day, duloxetine 20 to 120 milligrams a day. A lot of studies would suggest 60 milligrams is your optimal dose there with uh, uh, increasing side effects beyond that. Um, uh, but you can, if, if necessary, you can, can try higher doses. Uh, the milnesoprine or uh, Savella, again, uh, at 100, and tw 100 to 200 milligrams a day. Uh, Pregabalin or Lyrica at 300 to 450 milligrams a day. Gabapentin at uh, 1,200 milligrams a day. And then Tramadol uh, at 150 milligrams a day uh, are the European League Against Rheumatism uh, recommendations. Um, and as I saw, as I said, you see that common factor of serotonin norepinephrine uh, reuptake uh, inhibition. Um, now, <clears throat> as we know, all those medications I just mentioned, oftentimes when patients come to us, they've already been on or tried those medications and or these patients often have comorbid uh, depression anxiety. So they may be on a SSRI that they're stable on and doing well with after trying multiple medications. So do you really want to change them from an SSRI to an SNRI or do you want to take the risk of serotonin syndrome? Uh, and so bottom line is I've come across this very uh, many times uh, clinically, and I'm sure that we all do, where that's great to have that medication list, but they've either tried and failed those medications, there's contraindications because of their comorbidities or ages, or drug-drug um, uh, interactions limit what you can utilize. So I want to bring up two other medications that uh, have evidence for treatment of fibromyalgia that are better tolerated uh, with much less adverse and, uh, effect, effects and side effects. And, um, and have uh, evidence behind them. Um, so that would be low-dose naltrexone and then memantine or Nemenda. Um, and, you know, like I have uh, say many times, and you'll hear me say again, ultimately in medicine, all we have to go based on is the research that's out there, our clinical experience, and then thinking about the science behind it. Um, I can tell you, uh, you know, the research out there isn't massive, obviously, for these two medications, but it's there, um, including randomized controlled trials. Um, and then through my clinical experience, I have had success with these medications, and they are very well tolerated, and that's one of the nice things about them. So starting with low-dose naltrexone, um, there's multiple studies, including a randomized uh, double-blind placebo-controlled trial, uh, um, a counterbalanced uh, crossover study uh, done by Dr. Younger and colleagues in 2013. This was with 31 women with diagnoses of fibromyalgia. Uh, the patients received 4.5 milligrams of low-dose naltrexone uh, during the study. And what they found was a significant reduction of baseline pain in patients taking low-dose naltrexone relative to placebo. Uh, there was a 28.8% reduction uh, for patients taking low-dose naltrexone versus 18% reduction for those uh, taking placebo. Um, low-dose naltrexone also improved mood and satisfaction uh, with life in this study. There was minimal side effects. Uh, the only side effects I've ever seen and the only side effect that's really documented with low-dose naltrexone um, is uh, vivid dreams. Usually those dreams are good dreams, so it doesn't matter too much, but obviously if they're nightmares, that can be a problem. So that's the, I haven't clinically seen that uh, myself, but uh, that's documented that people can have vivid nightmares. Um, so you may wanna be careful, obviously, with someone who has a PTSD comorbidity. Um, so uh, in terms of availability of low-dose naltrexone, so it's a compounded medication currently. Uh, so you would have to go through a compounding pharmacy. The good thing is it's relatively inexpensive. So uh, patients generally are gonna have to pay about $50 a month 
uh, to utilize the medication, which obviously would be cost-limiting for some of our patients and not for others. Uh, but if it's making a huge impact on their daily pain, function, quality of life, then uh, risk-benefit-wise, including uh, financial costs, it, it may be um, something that, that uh, you continue with the patient. But um, if, if you uh, have a compounding pharmacy in the area that you trust, um, then uh, they can work with you and it can be very reasonable to utilize this medication from a cost perspective. Um, <clears throat> for mamantine, uh, so Dr. Olivia Blasquez and colleagues in 2014 did a double-blind uh, parallel randomized controlled trial, 63 patients with fibromyalgia. Mamantine was administered at 20 milligrams a day after a one-month titration up to that dose. And relative to placebo, patients receiving mamantine had significant decrease in pain, VAS scores, and pain measured by uh, uh, pressure, um, uh, uh, pressure points, and also depression and quality of life also significantly improved. Uh, for mamantine, based on that specific trial, the number needed to treat was six, 6.2 specifically, um, which is around what we'll find you know, for uh, medications like pregabalin and duloxetine in terms of uh, treating fibromyalgia. Uh, mamantine uh, had great tolerance with minimal side effects. Headache and dizziness were the most common side effects reported in the studies, and I find that to be true uh, clinically as well. But it's a medication that's been around a really long time. Uh, and that's good because we have a long track record on it. Um, we know that it's to uh, well tolerated um, without significant adverse effects and side effects typically. Um, so uh, <clears throat> that's the main medications that I wanted to go over. But um, as I mentioned, uh, the key point with fibromyalgia being that we know there are anatomic physiologic uh, changes that occur based upon the available research that we have. The diagnostic criteria are the American College of Rheumatology 2010 criteria that you can easily look up and administer to the patient. Treatment options need to be multimodal, including um, uh, the uh, low-impact aerobic exercise, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, and then your medication management being those three pillars. Um, and uh, just as always, want to quickly go over our uh, references that we had. So. Uh, one, uh, new insights into pathophysiology and treatment of fibromyalgia from the journal Biomedicines in 2017. Two, uh, efficacy of mamantine and treatment of fibromyalgia double-blind randomized controlled trial with six-month follow-up from Journal of Pain uh, 2014. And then uh, lastly, low-dose naltrexone for the treatment of fibromyalgia findings of a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled counterbalance crossover trial assessing daily pain levels from uh, Journal of Arthritis and Rheumatology 2013. Uh, Awesome. Wow, that is a significant amount of fantastic information. Um, as always, uh, please do your own research. This is not meant to be medical advice, uh, only meant to be information uh, to be able to help you along your journey. Um, Dr. Carvelis, if you can kind of sum up kind of the, the very small nuggets of takeaways that we can at least leave people with so that, you know, when, say, a, a fibromyalgia patient comes in and we need to digest it down into say a 30 or 60 second chunk uh, that we can explain uh, to a patient and give them a little bit of uh, information. What would be kind of your, you know, your very small nugget of wisdom that you would try to leave this patient uh, with, uh, you know, especially considering if we're talking about our primary care colleagues who, you know, aren't necessarily going to have uh, the extended amount of time to be able to explain all that you went through already to them. 
Yeah, <clears throat> uh, when explaining it to the patients, um, what I what I like to say is that um, fibromyalgia is a uh, disease uh, process that um, uh, has very much become uh, an issue with the pain pathway itself, with the with the neurologic system itself, and I and. Um, as I say that, I would be cautious with using uh, the word brain or mind um, because that you, you may lose the therapeutic relationship to some degree with your patients. So I really focus more on saying that fibromyalgia is a, uh, a disease process or condition um, where there are significant abnormalities in the neurologic system itself, in the pain, process, uh, uh, pain pathways itself. And there's an upregulation of receptors, neurotransmitters, in a uh, negative way, in a pathologic way, that result in many changes, uh, uh, including um, uh, significant pain, uh, um, uh, uh, amplification of pain, and other uh, debilitating associated symptoms, including, including fatigue and cognitive changes. Um, and... I, again, like I said, I, I also make sure I emphasize to them that this has occurred over a long period of time, and we need to, uh, we'll, we'll continue to work on it, but it's going to be something that we need to work on for, for some time to have a positive impact. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, some of the things that I always talk to patients about um, when we are talking about fibromyalgia is, like you said, um, getting them on board with the idea that this is going to be something that they're going to be working with, you know, on, on a regular basis to, to try to to moderate the symptoms, uh, you know, realistically, probably for the rest of their lives. Uh, and so starting with talking about things that they can do for in terms of pacing, in terms of setting up appropriate sleep routines, you know, like you brought up really early in the conversation, that very consistent daily cardiovascular activity, right? Even if that's only walking in a pool for five or 10 minutes, but starting to get that blood flowing and giving them that information that they need to start doing all of these things. You know, we didn't get a chance to touch on it, but you know, there are very fantastic studies showing how much diet interacts with fibromyalgia and other inflammatory or you know, central nervous system types of processes and really making sure that they understand that there is a lot that they can control, but it is them in control of being able to moderate this uh, disease process because we don't have a magic bullet, we don't have a magic pill, it takes a lot of work to be able to moderate these symptoms and help them to be as functional as possible. Yeah, um, uh, uh, yeah. If, if, if the patient is a passive uh, player in the treatment and you're, um, and you're just giving them duloxetine or pregabalin or any of these medications uh, and the patient's receiving it passively, it's very unlikely uh, to succeed. The medication, um, like many of our chronic pain processes, uh, the medications, the procedures, the surgeries, they're to some degree uh, a rescue therapy to get things to a point where they can do all these other things to get themselves back as healthy as possible. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that deep dive into fibromyalgia. Hopefully you guys found this helpful uh, and we shall talk to you next time. Thanks.